Welcome to Episode 9 of The Lift. I'm Dr. Linda LeBlanc. And I'm Dr. Tyra Sellers. And we are going to be talking with you about interpersonal and therapeutic relationship skills. We are so excited to have our colleague and friend, Dr. Bridget Taylor, with us today. She is one of my favorite people. She's a collaborator and just a real kind of spirit animal for me and my work in the area of autism. She's the co-founder and CEO of Alpine Learning Group. She got her PsyD from Rutgers University and is a BCBAD as well as a licensed psychologist. She is most recently the past president of the Behavior Analyst Certification Board. She serves on the Autism Advisory Group for the Cambridge Center for Behavioral Studies. She's been an associate editor for the Journal of Applied Behavior Analysis. She serves on the editorial board of Behavioral Interventions and is a reviewer for many journals. She is an ABAI fellow, an amazing human being, and really an authority on effective, innovative interventions and compassionate care for individuals with autism and their family. Yay, Bridget. Thank you for being here. Yay. Thank you so much, Linda and Tyra, for inviting me. I'm really excited about the topic today. So I I really, really appreciate the invitation. We couldn't think of anyone better than you to talk about um, these skill sets, which are really related to how we have an impact on people. The the quote for this chapter is by Maya Angelou, um, another amazing human being. And it is, I've learned that people will forget what you said. People will forget what you did, but people will never forget how you made them feel. And that, that statement about the importance of the impact that we have on other people really speaks to why interpersonal skills and therapeutic relationship skills are so important in behavior analysis. Yes, I couldn't agree more. And it's a really beautiful quote. It actually reminds me of a quote that's well known out there by Theodore Roosevelt, which is, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. So we are so good at training the technical skills of our clinicians and our university training programs are so good at helping us to be really good at verbal, you know, our verbal person, our skills and being able to um, articulate the, the technology. But really when it comes down to it, it's how you communicate what it is that we're so good at doing and that relationship that we form with the people, you know, with our families, with uh, the, the clients whom we're trusted with caring for. So really it is about that relationship as, as being really, really important and pivotal in the work that we do. So well said. You know, um, this is from our book, one of the statements that um, meant a lot to us as we wrote this chapter, and that is that care and compassion for the well-being of others propels our practice. And to me, that's critical that every behavior analyst know. It also is integral in our science. These two things don't have to be separate. They don't have to be um, dichotomous. You have to be one or the other. If you are an effective behavior analyst, supervisor, 
if you're teaching other people these skills, you're going to be most successful if you're in the game because of care and compassion for others. Yeah. And, you know, so much of what we do are relational acts. And so when you are in a family's home, helping them uh, learn how to interact with their child or teaching them skills that they need to be effective teachers of their children, they are relational acts. And when we ask families to do things, we're in a, we're in a relationship with them. It is a special relationship, but that requires that we practice those relationship skills and the, you know, the empathy and the perspective taking and the compassion. And we shouldn't be surprised if we're not very effective, if we're not paying attention to that, you know, it's like um, those interpersonal skills set the ceiling on how effective we're going to be able to be no matter what else we know, because if we behave in ways that distance people from us or make them less willing to follow our lead, to listen, to trust what we say, that's on us. And the success and the part of behaving in in ways that lead them to trust our instinct, trust our intent, trust our caring, that's on us too. And we achieve that with our interpersonal skills. Yeah, yes. And that it makes me sort of think about, you know, this idea that compassion is, you know, they're multifaceted, right? But primarily focusing on sort of identifying that someone else is experiencing something, connecting with that experience, Uh, And wanting to do something to support, change, alleviate, what have you. And at the same time, I think about how most of what we ask folks to do um, is more effortful than what they have been doing, maybe, at least in the short run um, or in the the short term. And it might not feel great uh, or it might at least feel awkward. And so if you aren't um, coming from a place of compassion and being very clear about that, I don't know how we expect folks to engage in trusting relationships where they then will do those more effortful or more awkward um, things if they are not aware that those recommendations are coming from that place of compassion um, in the service of improving their lives, the lives of other individuals. You know, it's this has uh, been demonstrated time and again in other healthcare industries. And so Think about our own personal experiences with our medical professionals whom we interact with over our healthcare, and we are more likely to follow recommendations, and this has been documented through research in, in medicine, it, when our doctor interacts with us in a compassionate, empathic way, when they take the time to really understand what we are struggling with, help us to identify potentially some of the obstacles that uh, we may confront in implementing our own treatment. And so we have to make that effort with our clients whom we serve. We have to make time to have those relationships. Yeah. You know, the, the number of hours that most of our learners are engaged in treatment, it's, a, it's many, many hours that clinicians have to entrust us with the care of their child. And that, and like as Tyra said, to follow our recommendations, there has to be a level of trust there. And that, that comes with our behavior and how we're interacting with them. Agreed. In this chapter of the book, we talk about five core interpersonal skills, and it's not like they're all completely separate and distinct. They kind of all 
they overlap and they when they all come together and you are firing on all of these cylinders, people around you know, you know, you impact others in positive ways. And um, the term's been used behavioral artist. And the notion is that if you are paying attention to these core skills, you can really influence other people in meaningful and precise and, and really impactful ways. So the five we talk about, and they're certainly not the only interpersonal skills, but it's communication skills, noticing and self-reflection perspective taking, flexibility and compromise, and integrity and accountability. And I don't know that we're going to have time to go through all of those in detail, but um, I thought maybe we could each pick a favorite that we want to discuss with the others, and that'll allow us to hit two or three of these um, and why we think this is one of the you know, important ones, whether we happen to be particularly good at it or not, um, (laughs) or if we're on a journey to becoming better at it. So Tyra, do you want to kick us off? Do you have a favorite of those five that you want to chat about? Sure. Uh, I mean, it's difficult to pick a favorite, um, but I would say noticing and self-reflection Um, only because that's an area that is difficult for me and has been throughout my career. And I think it's difficult for many of us because I don't think it's something that is sort of taught well um, or modeled in an explicit way for us. So, you know, the idea that it's important that I need to be an observer and a listener to my own behavior while I'm engaging in it, which is really, really hard. And I tend to sort of be more of a bull in a china shop kind of person, right? I just like engage in a bunch of behavior and let it get shaped, which I think is a great way generally to uh, explore the world. But when you're talking about high stakes interactions where you could be hurting someone, you could be behaving with great intentions, but not having the right impact, that it requires that restraint and that slowdown and that self-observing. And so I've struggled with it um, in lots of different applications um, in my professional and personal life. And so I think that's probably my favorite, you know, really that you have to be willing to find a way to observe your behavior, to be a listener to your own verbal um, behavior, and then to really think about and reflect on what motivated that behavior. Why did you engage in that behavior? You're the only one that can discover that, right? Like you are, you have access to uh, variables that other people don't. Um, and, and, you know, really making a choice to purposefully um, behave in a different way under similar conditions in the future if you didn't get the result that that you needed and that it, it you just don't you can't leave it to chance particularly when you're talking about dealing with vulnerable folks so that's my fave yeah it's a good one um Bridget what do you think about that one the noticing and self-reflection well, you know she stole it from me because- <laughs> you stole my favorite I, I will build on that um which is the runner-up is perspective taking and I think the um you know, self-reflection 
is part, part perspective taking is part of that self-reflection, right? Mm-hmm. So when I have an interaction with a parent and I don't think that interaction went the way I really wanted it to go because maybe I said something that um, was unintentionally uh, hurtful for, for, you know, something that I said that, that uh, I walked away from and maybe felt badly. That happens, my self-reflection of the conversation having an understanding of what it's like for the family to have received that communication mm-hmm. requires perspective taking. And so we know that perspective taking is, you know, the old saying is walking in someone else's shoes, but the truth is, is I'll never be able to fully be in those shoes. And so I have to always draw on my own personal experience of distress and loss. For example, if I'm working with a family of a newly diagnosed child to inform me about what that experience might be like for that parent. And so um, in self-reflection in the moment is so hard, right? Moment by yes. moment. I'm, I'm the same way, which is it's always after the fact that I go, oh, I think I, my tone and I could have, and I, yep. and you know, so and I will next time <laughs> even better. And it's a learning experience. And that's when that self-compassion comes in, which is to be easy on ourselves and to say, you know, we have tomorrow. I can, you know, I tell my staff, you know, there's plenty of times where I've picked up the call. I picked up a phone and called a parent back and said, you know, hey, I want to revisit this conversation and apologize for something that I said, or let me check in with you on how you assess the conversation. And that only comes with self-reflection, which, and you know, perspective taking becomes part of that. Yeah, I love that. I love that too. And then you took mine and that's a really good one. So um, let me say this, like I am becoming ever more convinced that the better we are at noticing and noticing how we're behaving, how we're thinking about how we're behaving, the effect we're having on someone else all simultaneously that's some next level stuff and um, much less when you're just learning the words to say and the things <laughs> to try and, and what have you. I think if I, um, as a brand new BCBA, had self-reflected as much as I can now or noticed all of that, my head would have blown up, right? Like, oh, there's so much coming at you. Like you have to get good at part of it and then good at, get good at the next part and get good at the next part. And I think that's really where a, a, a supervisor that can help mm-hmm. you, you know, sometimes even seeing your sessions, they're going to notice stuff that you didn't and they can add in. Maybe they'll notice things about your behavior. Maybe they'll notice things about how, let's say that family or the staff person was responding to what you did and they can really describe that, you know, I saw this and then this happened and kind of even prompt that perspective taking of, you know, why do you think that might've happened or, or, or what have you? I think um, one of the ones that I really like is flexibility and compromise. And it's one that I think can be particularly hard when you are simultaneously struggling with this is hard and it's new and it's really important that I be right because I don't want to make mistakes and someone is disagreeing with you. And I think that 
um, certainly early in my career and even now many times, um, this is an area where I have to like shake it out, LeBlanc, (laughs) get get flexible, get, you know, I I don't want to be a super twister, but I got to be a little bit more flexible and recognize that, um, it's not anytime you start thinking about one of us has to be right or win, everybody has lost. Yeah. And, you know, that powerful reminder that compromising isn't a dirty word. It's <laughs> making reasonable concessions in a way that's agreeable to everyone. And I think it takes us a while And sometimes even a few times where we maybe didn't compromise when we should have and seeing the effects that, you know, you can decide I don't need to compromise, but you can only decide that so many times and then you're out of the game. You're not part of the decision making anymore. And so that notion of like, well, when is it okay to compromise, particularly when you're working with a family, what I always say is almost always, because it's not your kid. You are discretionary. You are extra and you have to protect your opportunity to have influence and give support. You are not the boss of other people's lives. You're barely the boss of your own. (laughs) And you know, that speaks to, uh, the communication skills, right? So when I am working with staff and helping them learn how to compromise, it's all about how they engage in that conversation Mm -hmm. with the parent. And I can give you an example of a family early in COVID who um, was really struggling with the idea that their child would wear a mask. And we had mask mandates at the school and, you know, staff were really digging their heels in and, you know, they were ready for, you know, a fight when, when it came down to sit it came down to having the conversation with the parent and I took the lead in the conversation and, and, and modeled for them that, you know, you have to listen to what the concerns are, you know, part of communication skills is to pay. And you say, Linda, pay attention. It's like, let's give space to the parent to voice the concern. Let's give space to the, for us to understand why is this such a concern for them? And you're not going to meet in the middle until they have an opportunity to fully express all of the reasons of concern and allow the room, allow us to just hear, hear them out. And so, so much of that being able to compromise really comes down to those vital communication skills, the active listening, being able to paraphrase back. So I hear what you're saying is mm-hmm. you're really concerned that a mask will stifle his, his breathing and you're concerned about his asthma, you know, really what is the concern and how, and you know, I can tell you, it just takes the air out of the room. When somebody is listening and a, you can see the parents' shoulders just relax, you know, everybody they came ready for a fight too. They didn't came they? ready for a fight too. And, and, you know, they're, you know, they want to powwow with us and it's just like, oh, and then everything's just a little bit easier, you know, a little bit easier. We may not get a hundred percent of what we want. And, You know, we made a a real nice compromise where it was like 30 seconds of practice and then slowly build over time and monitor with the nurse. And, you know, she wanted a couple of other programs to be taught instead. We compromised on that. So, you know, it it had to be, but that doesn't come by just saying, okay, we're going to compromise. It's like, 
let's hear your concerns. Let's hear what this is about. And, and, you know, getting down to really helping the family to, to feel heard and, and listen to. And, and what I love about that example and sort of just generally that idea, Bridget, is that what you're teaching your staff is um, to listen so that they learn, not to listen so that they can prepare their response or their rebuttal or their argument, right? You're listening to learn how do we meet a common goal, not how do I convince you to take my position. Um, and that's a powerful thing to learn how to do, to, to just listen without judgment and be open to learning something about that other person and their perspective. Even if it doesn't change your mind, that's not the point, right? That's right. And, and never in history have all of us had to become better listeners when we're dealing with vaccination, people who don't want to be vaccinated and you're running sure. companies or people, you know, and so it, it's been really hard to, to compromise on some of these issues, right? And that listening becomes really vital to keeping those relationships really solid. Yeah. Well, and the way that you compromise, it's not like you compromised with like, well, then nobody wear a mask. It'll be great. You compromise with, well, you know what, what we do is teach. And you're saying this is going to be hard for him and that you're concerned about asthma and how uncomfortable he will be. So let's start working on teaching and let's monitoring it. So you didn't compromise outside of the realm of something reasonable, behavioral, potentially effective, or that we're going to take some data and see how it goes. And so I think, you know, that's where when I say it can be okay to compromise almost all of the time. I'm not saying you have to say, well, let's not do behavior analysis. We're going to do Reiki. Like that's not the compromise we're looking for, but there is so much room to be flexible, to listen and to address that within the framework of compassionate behavior analysis. Uh, it, it seems to me, as you were saying that, Linda, and reflecting on Bridget's example, the idea almost is the, the compromise is less on the ultimate goal because, you know, both parties in your example, Bridget, the goal was to, you know, keep this individual safe and healthy and happy. Um, the compromise sort of comes in the process or how you go about meeting that goal. And um, that often we can compromise in our processes in a way that honors things that feel good, that that maybe feel more dignified, that maybe feel kinder or gentler. Um, and, and I really love that idea. So yeah, it's not like we're compromising because I'm going to give up my ultimate goal. No, I hear your concerns and I want to make sure that all of our concerns are met to the best of our ability. Yeah. Well, interpersonal relationships matter, whether it is your coworker, your supervisor, your supervisee, um, your someone in another discipline, it all matters. And you, you know, that notion of I will be able to accomplish more for myself and the people I serve if I use my skills to better 
communicate with, engage with, understand, and uh, and collaborate with other people, regardless of who they are. But that idea of col- of uniquely collaborating with families in the context of the care we provide is something that's close to my heart. And I know it's close to your heart because we've had the opportunity to collaborate on a couple of papers. And, um, and when we were collaborating on this, you know, every meeting, Tyra, you should have been there. And like, it just was a, you know, this conversation about, and this, and this, and this, and so many ideas, so much understanding of the importance, but also maybe this concern that we're not yet knocking it out of the ballpark on this um, in terms of our practice and that we have to, we understand the importance of this. We've got a part of writing those papers was to convey to other people, right? This is important. This matters. This could change your outcomes. And this is a little bit of how to do it. Um, You know, you really handled a lot of the, here's how it works in other healthcare fields. And this is not just our crisis. It's not, you know, uh, I'm not trying to be all judgy and blamey about behavior analysis. Um, This has absolutely happened in healthcare professions. And it's now a mandatory part of medical training that you have training on empathy and therapeutic relationships and connecting with your patients. It's not just okay to have a crud ball bedside manner anymore. Even though that still exists. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. It's not okay, but it definitely still exists. (laughs) Yeah. And that's, you know, when, when you and I embarked on this project, I started looking at who was doing work in this area and yeah, it's really clear that other healthcare industries are interested in these, in this topic and really see it as essential. And, uh, you know, being trained as a psychologist and you as well, that, you know, um, you get training in that therapeutic relationship building and, um, and we understand the importance when it comes to helping people make changes in their lives. And in medicine, we know that it can improve patient care experience. And so although these are based on rating scales and behavior analysis might have problems with the data measures, nonetheless, uh, patients are reporting improved, reduced anxiety at, at office visits and improved, uh, you know, just the quality of the care is judged to be much better when the doctor is interacting with them in a way that's compassionate and empathic. And that leads to better adherence and then potentially better outcomes. And, um, you know, while there, it's a small but statistically significant meta-analyses that have been conducted, it nonetheless, um, seems to indicate that when doctors are interacting with patients in a particular way, that it can in fact affect outcomes if people are adhering to their prescribed regimens, medical regimens. I was just gonna say, and we know that adherence is often an issue in our profession. Correct, yeah. I mean, and that's an interest of mine of late is really looking at, you know, what what are some of the variables that contribute to adherence to treatment. And, you know, we, we, uh, you know, we still have a lot to learn about that. Mm -hmm. You know, we did the 
first paper where we surveyed families about some of their experiences with their providers. And there clearly were some aspects of compassionate care where we did well and others where we were not rated as doing so well. And, you know, the just here's the big picture theme. We're great at focusing on that kid but not necessarily at really fully embracing that this family is our client. And so asking how they're doing, asking what they value, ask, you know, those kinds of things. Like it's not even going to cross your mind if your mindset is that this child is my client and they somehow exist separate from that context um, of their family. Yeah, and I think a theme that came up again and again in the survey was communication and the, the importance of, of communication and the value that they placed on being communicated with regularly about changes in programs and changes in treatment uh, in therapists and so on, like wanting to know more information. And I think that that's a, a real t- was a take home for me is that parents just really want information. They do, and they don't necessarily want to look at graphs. That that graph might be a good tool to communicate, but they want to communicate in ways that they know how to communicate. They want to hear in a language that they understand. And so, you know, if we kind of equate communication as data sharing, we might try to communicate in ways that are a little bit aversive or jargony. And they feel like we're not communicating, even though we're like, but I'm sharing the data. <laughs> like I'm communicating the best way we, I could. That's maybe a great way to communicate with other people in the field, but maybe or maybe not with a family who's wanting information in a digestible, acceptable, understandable form. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I don't want to interrupt you, Bridget, but I was just wondering, do, like, do you have examples for... Um, maybe how folks can <clears throat> address that. Like, uh, you know, for example, do you suggest that people early on in their relationship with caregivers just say, like, how do you like to get updates? Are you an email person? Do you love graphs? Like, yeah. You know, I, I think sometimes we think too hard about these things. And what we really <laughs> need to ask ourselves is what would we want? Right. We want somebody to ask us, you know, what is the way you would want to be communicated with? And um, and so, yeah, really helping clinicians to understand the importance of engaging families by asking questions Mm -hmm. and finding out what's important to them, even in looking at how they they might think they learn best. Right. You know, what's going to work for you is video working. We found out during the pandemic when we switched to virtual that many families did a lot better during our virtual parent training sessions than they did when we were working directly with them. And that was a really interesting phenomenon. It was purely anecdotal. I don't have any data to support it, but parents were reporting, appreciating our training. And I think because it was so much more focused, right? We were there on the computer with them. But um, I think you're absolutely right, Tyra, which is asking families, you know, what kinds of communication is important to them um, when, you know, Unfortunately, we're in this industry now where everybody's, you know, really concerned about time management because of the billable hour. 
And sometimes we don't make time that we should be making with families. And if we don't make the time, if we're too concerned about the billable hour, it's really going to impact our capacity to have relationships with families. And so we can ask those questions if we don't make the time. But I think, you know, setting up opportunities to find out what's going to uh, work for the family is really vital. Yeah. And, you know, what I... I don't think data are bad. Let's let's be clear about what? that. I, I love some data. But whenever I share data with a family, I am not showing them the same kind of data that I respond to. Sure. It's a much higher level of analysis, you know, might be some bar graphs, you know, and it's usually to support a point. So for example, I might be talking about the fact that, you know, your child's been learning a, a, a lot of skills. Here's how many new targets mastered per month. But here's the cool thing. He's learning how to learn faster. And here's how I know. Here's a little graph going down. That means, you know, less times to get it right. Less times mm-hmm. to get it right. I don't need to tell him about an X and Y axis, but that visual is going to support the way that I am conveying what the progress has been or the concern. Whereas we are much more likely when we're talking to other professionals to lead with the graph, orient them real quick and then dive deep. And in this data point and that data point um, and without all of shared technology and science and background, like that's just not going to be the right way to go. I, I, I also, you know, we, when we have our clinic meetings, we'll pull up graphs on, on to the, uh, the, the smart board. And, you know, it, I, it, we really have to pause and say to, to explain to families what we're looking at. And it's not, and they learn, of course, you know, don't underestimate a parent's capacity to learn, but I think sometimes we just assume everybody in the room understands what we're talking about. And I think taking the time to just say, okay, so here's what we're looking at. And, uh, but here's what it means. Also the, the reverse of that is, is the inverse of that is having families be able to tell us what data collection systems work for them at home. And so we've had to modify and just do like a rating scale, you know, how, how was his behavior tonight on us? You know, one, two, or three, it was great. You know, not so great. It was really awful because it was so cumbersome for them. And I think we need to be able to adapt our technology to meet the needs of families. And, you know, sometimes we might get so caught up and it's got to be this precise data for us to really know whether the behavior is going down or going up. And, and I think we want to make sure that we, we modify our procedures and so that families flexible. can be flexible. Right. Yeah. I was going to say flexibility and compromise for the win. <laughs> It comes right back around. Um, Well, you know, we also worked on a second paper and it really confirmed for us that, you know, the outcomes that we're getting are a product of the learning experiences that people have. So we also surveyed practicing behavior analysts about their graduate training. And some of these behavior analysts also had backgrounds in other disciplines, whether it was counseling, SLP education, whatever, and asked them a little bit about their graduate training, 
practical, you know, the academic, the practicum, and then postgraduate experiences in this area of compassionate care and therapeutic relationship skills. And, you know, guess what? We get what we paid for, right? <laughs> That's right. So, yeah, we found that uh, most, as could be predicted, had not had training in these skills, and some were getting them in mentored experiences, which is hopeful because I think there is, you know, since we started working on this in 2018, there's definitely been a, a, a sea change. I tell people when I talk about these papers that it's going to be obsolete. Eventually, we can't talk about this paper anymore because I think things are changing for the better, which is terrific. But the yes, the paper did show that the survey showed that that uh, this is not being taught in graduate training programs as to be, you know, as predicted. And, you know, we also looked at the assigned readings and or we didn't, there was another um, article that did, and there weren't any, right? Well, how can there be assignments if there aren't papers that are clearly focused on this? So, so part of what we were hoping to do was just get some things out there that could be assigned. And then let's see what we get, you know, maybe there will be five, six, seven papers that occur over the span such that, you know, you could have a section of a course that really focuses um, on these skills. And, um, you know, and I, we're starting to see more of that, right? And so um, I reviewed a paper where they did clicker training. It was, um, gosh, it's escaping me now, the author. I'm going to find it so I can mention the <laughs> name. Um, but you know, there are people doing work now to see if we can train these skills, right? And so when so we you're published- saying they did clicker training for the therapeutic, for the like interact active listening or whatever skills. Yes. And so we're starting to see more focus on this, right? And so we've sat on a couple of dissertation committees, Linda and I, um, and I, I'm excited because I think more people are showing interest in this, but it is an empirical question whether we can teach these skills. I think we can look at the field of medicine and other areas of psychology, healthcare, that, that you can teach people to engage in certain responses like paraphrasing, um, body language. So that's been a big thing in medicine. So I think that, you know, there is no discipline better than ours to operationalize these responses, put them out there in, measure, in a measurable way, and then developing those training curricula and then empirically valid, validating those, those curricula that, that uh, you know, demonstrate that people can, in fact, learn these skills. That's right. Yeah, yeah. I totally agree. It, it kind of reminds me of the trajectory the profession is taking with regard to things like cultural responsiveness, where, you know, everybody agrees that we need it. Um, and some people think they're doing really great at it, but most of us never got any structured instruction in it. Right. So, um, and now there's more scholarly work coming out in that area. Um, and, and I, right, the people who are doing clicker trick person it's one of Evelyn Gould's students and she is a co-author that I remember so it was a demonstration of using clicker training to shape up some therapeutic relationship skills in the context of role play with with people who were uh, role-playing interaction so people are starting to do work in this area and I actually love that because the clicker is a minimal um, disruptor to the kind of flow of the interaction that's going on um 
But I also worry, and I wonder if the two of you have thought about this, you know, there's um, this phenomenon that happens where we often rate our, our competence and are more confident than our skills actually are. And I wonder if that, if that happens to some degree when it comes to things like interpersonal communication skills and compassionate care, and maybe some of us think we're doing better than we really are. It's possible. And yeah, it's always a bad place to be when your confidence exceeds your competence, you know? And I will say in the context of supervising others and so many new people in the field, for many of them, they have not even been thinking about this. When they hear about the ideas and the strategies and how they might think about it, it intuitively feels wonderful, great. Yes, I want to do that. And for many of them, they can immediately recognize like, yeah, I maybe didn't say that the right way. For some, they might not. And I think that's something that we need to think about that if in fact we purport, we posit that these skills are critical to your success in behavior analysis, and especially in applied behavior analysis, and especially in applied behavior analysis where you are in human services, working with clients, with families. There are some folks who come into our field and they have a strong interest and motivation, but they don't have great interpersonal skills. They don't have great perspective taking. Like it's just, it's not just that they haven't thought about, I should, you know, try to embrace the perspective of the parent. They don't have great perspective taking skills for anyone else. And for me, like it can be hard to move the needle on that. This isn't. You know, it's one thing to build upon pretty decent interpersonal skills, but to really hone them and refine them in the context of a therapeutic relationship. But I want to hear from you guys, too, about this, you know, should we be selecting for interpersonal effectiveness and interests in having relationships with people as part of our recruiting, because I do think for a lot of our programs, they want to recruit scientists. It's just that many of those people then become practitioners and that this notion of, of really having compassionate relationships with family might not have been part of the game plan for them. Yeah, I think it's um, it's really important that providers look for those skills if they're able to identify them on interview. Um, I did a, a couple of interviews today, actually, for staff for our school program, and I was just I was struck by the variety in that level of engagement. You know, so so a person, and you know, we're in masks doing interviews, so it's it's awkward to begin with. So you can't read facial expressions very well. 
Um, but it was very important to me that when I asked certain questions about what is it that you like about what, you know, working with kids and that they spoke to the relationship, you know, how much they like to interact with people with disabilities and how much, how, how, what they feel doing it and um, whether they had an, an understanding of, of a family's perspective. And those are things that I ask on interview and, um, and it, it does matter to me. It matters to me how they answer. And if somebody seems completely devoid of that and doesn't seem to have an understanding of what it might be like, um, they don't have to be expert because they're not. They're coming to these, these are paraprofessionals who are going to be doing, you know, the, the they're like RBTs, right? They're coming in, they're doing the, the, the work. And um, but I'm looking for something other than just if they can tell me that they can do discrete trial teaching. Like what is in the relationship there between you and the child? Do you also look for that with, let's say you're hiring a new BCBA? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. We recruited someone recently um, and, you know, BCBAs are really hard to come by these days. (laughs) Let's face it, we're all struggling to hire. But I was so delighted when I met her because her interpersonal skills were so, I, I didn't hire her. One of my directors hired her, but I was really happy with how she presented herself. And I right away, you know, sent a text and said, you know, you picked a good one. She, you know, she's got such, she just was so comfortable talking about the work that she does and how much joy she gets out of the work that she does. And so those, you know, they're subtle and it may seem metaphorical that we're talking about these relationship skills, but they're there. You know them when you see them. You know them when you see <laughs> sure them. Sure do. Mm-hmm. And they don't replace the Absolutely. other skills. You can be nice all day long, but if you don't know the basics of how to design programming and and to use behavior analysis to create positive effects, that's not going to be a winner, winner, chicken dinner either. <laughs> you really have to have the, the foundational skills for both of those. And I also think, you know, the same thing is true in being a supervisor. Absolutely. So it's not only that we have to work to teach our students, practicum, employees that are working with families this, but you have to bring exactly those same skills to the supervisory relationship and to kind of have that perspective taking of what was it like for me when I was a brand new penny and was just, you know, nervous that I wasn't going to get it right or, or just, you know, didn't even have that additional perspective on how the world perceived me and to have some compassion, but also some, this is my job too, you know, that if you really are going to be someone's supervisor and they really are going to be supervising others or providing um, care to families helping them develop these skills is part of taking that full responsibility as a supervisor. Okay. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that that circles back so much to that, that core, like my favorite um, core interpersonal skill that we talked about earlier that I ripped away from Bridget of noticing in self-reflection, because I think 
to be a good super, to be a good clinician, but to be a good supervisor requires that because you have to attend to your own behavior and be able to discriminate, you know, why did I, why did I change my tone of voice in that interaction? Why did I choose that word instead of that word? Why did I engage in this thing differently? And then you have to be able to describe that. You have to tact it for folks. And then you have to try to teach other people how to do that. And it's really, really flipping hard. Yeah, and I think the the idea of of perspective taking is really important when you're teaching BCBAs to supervise RBTs or clinicians who are paraprofessionals on the ground doing the work. And, you know, um, I think what happens in our field is people move into supervisory positions very quickly because (laughs) we have a shortage of, of, of BCBAs. And so they're kind of moved into a position where they now they're supervising staff and um and they may not have a full perspective of what it's like because they may not have been in the chair as long as they might have we might have wanted them to be um but it does require some pause and reflection for them when a a, you know a clinician of an rbt might be struggling with teaching you know Mm -hmm. it's not only knowing the technical aspects of problem solving but what that experience might be like for the the rbt you know what is it like for them to to feel unsuccessful and having that level of compassion and, and providing that support to them. And then that needs to inform how you communicate to them. And, you know, in a prior podcast, we were able to talk with a flow de Janeiro read about feedback and, and the notion of anchoring the feedback you are giving to how you can be effective and feel more confident and have the positive impact that you want with this client. And if you're not engaging in that perspective taking, when you are supervising and giving that feedback, it can pretty quickly come across as you need to do better because I want you to do better. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, you know, that may be true, but in fact, that's not going to be inspiring to anyone. And you're going to have a bigger impact on their behavior if you can describe, you know, this certain thing seems to be having this effect on teaching. I'm going to offer you an idea that might change that a little bit and get this child responding more quickly, differently. Can we try that together? And it really anchors it to the fact that number one, I've just communicated, I trust your intent that you want to be good and do good. I'm communicating to you my intent that I care and want to help you be good and do good and that we're in this together. And this isn't just a you step up your game, which even when you're not saying that, a person who doesn't know how to please you yet might hear it that way. Yeah, I often reflect on something similar when, um, you know, you're thinking about addressing individuals that kind of have persistent performance issues and you haven't been able to get the the change that you're looking for. And I think even just acknowledging, you know, like, hey, listen, Bridget, it's it's got to feel frustrating for you to continually to try to do what you think I'm asking you to do. And you must feel like you're not hitting the mark. And I'm really sorry. Let's work together to see how we can come up with 
um, a better description or a better plan for us to make the change that we need. But I, I just think even making that acknowledgement can really go very far. Well, there is clearly a lot of great work to be done in this area, not only in research on interpersonal skills, but in teaching these kinds of interpersonal and therapeutic skills, um, relationship skills to our new behavior analysts. And, you know, we've not had tons of great instructional resources, but the article that we published had a proposed curriculum. And guess what? Bridget and I are going to practice what we preach. And so coming down the road from ABA Technologies, we're going to be creating some instructional CEUs so that any behavior analyst who wants to learn more of these skills, um, the best thing is to have a master as your boss. So go work at Alpine. But <laughs> if you don't happen to, okay, I Bridget, quit. I'm going to go work there right now. That's right. But if you don't have enough Bridget Taylor in your back pocket, you could at least have her on your screen along with me kind of talking through each of these skills and presenting examples and non-examples and activities to kind of let people be able to access a curriculum for these kinds of skills. So I know that's going to be fun and I can't wait for us to have that out. Um, and, you know, it's really a passion project for us. That's right. That's right. I think there, there's the field is really wide open when it comes to this work. So any of you who are listening, if it interests you, there's much more work to be done in terms of empirically validating training programs. So get, get to work in this very important area. <laughs> well, thanks everybody for joining us on this episode of The Lift. Tyra mentioned all of this stuff is hard and that's part of why we call this podcast The Lift. It is effortful, but this is how we raise the field together. And so focusing on these kinds of important skills and also focusing on teaching new behavior analysts these skills, that's, that's how we raise the game. We raise the level and we kind of move towards the kind of impact we want behavior analysis to have. Uh, on the field. So thank you, Bridget, for joining us. Yes, thank, thank you, you Linda. so much. Thank you, Linda and Tyra. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you so much. Great topic and great podcast. Yay.